Chapter 2 Unknown Unknowns As Dr David Adam says in his brilliant account of obsessive-compulsive disorder, The Man Who Couldn't Stop, only a fool or a liar will tell you how the brain works. A brain is not a toaster. It is complex. It may only weigh a little over a kilo, but it is a kilo that contains a whole lifetime of memories. It is worryingly magical in that it does so much with us still not understanding how or why. It is, like all else, made out of atoms which themselves came into being in stars millions of years ago. Yet more is known about those faraway stars than the processes of our brain. The one item in the whole universe that can think about, well, the whole universe. A lot of people still believe that depression is about chemical imbalance. Incipient insanity was mainly a matter of chemicals, wrote Kurt Vonnegut in Breakfast of Champions. Dwayne Hoover's body was manufacturing certain chemicals which unbalanced his mind. It's an attractive idea, and one that has, over the years, been supported by numerous scientific studies. A lot of the research into the scientific causes of depression has focused on chemicals such as dopamine and more often serotonin. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. That is a type of chemical that sends signals from one area of the brain to the other. The theory goes that an imbalance in serotonin levels caused by low brain cell production of serotonin equates to depression. So it's no surprise that some of the most common antidepressants from Prozac down, are SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which raise the serotonin levels in your brain. However, the serotonin theory of depression looks a bit wobbly. The problem has been highlighted by the emergence of antidepressants that have no effect on serotonin, and some that do the exact opposite of an SSRI, namely Selective serotonin reuptake enhancers, which have been shown to be as effective at treating depression. Add to this the fact that serotonin in an active, living human brain is a hard thing to measure, and you have a very inconclusive picture indeed. Back in 2008, Ben Goldacre in The Guardian was already questioning the serotonin model. Quacks from the $600 billion pharma industry sell the idea that depression is caused by low serotonin levels in the brain, and so you need drugs which raise the serotonin levels in your brain. That's the serotonin hypothesis. It was always shaky, and the evidence is now hugely contradictory. So, annoyingly, scientists aren't all singing from the same hymn sheet. Some don't even believe there is a hymn sheet. Others have burnt the hymn sheet and written their own songs. For instance, a professor of behavioural science at Stanford University called Robert Malenka believes that research needs to be carried out in other areas, like on the bit of the brain right in the centre, the tiny nucleus accumbens. As this is already known to be responsible for pleasure and addiction, it makes a kind of sense that if it isn't working properly, we'll feel the opposite of pleasure, anhedonia. This is the complete inability to feel pleasure, a chief symptom of depression. It would also mean that the fantasy about reaching into our skulls and taking out the part of our brains that is causing us bother is highly improbable, 
as we would have to go through the entire frontal cortex to reach this tiny, central piece of us. Maybe looking at a specific part or chemical in the brain is only ever going to give a partial answer. Maybe we should be looking at how we live and how our minds weren't made for the lives we lead. Human brains, in terms of cognition and emotion and consciousness, are essentially the same as they were at the time of Shakespeare, or Jesus, or Cleopatra, or the Stone Age. They are not evolving with the pace of change. Neolithic humans never had to face emails, or breaking news, or pop-up ads, or Iggy Azalea videos, or a self-service checkout at a strip-lit Tesco Metro on a busy Saturday night. Maybe, instead of worrying about upgrading technology and slowly allowing ourselves to be cyborgs, we should have a little peek at how we could upgrade our ability to cope with all this change. One thing can be said for sure. We are nowhere near the end of science, especially a baby science like neuroscience. So most of what we know now will be disproved or reassessed in the future. That is how science works. Not through blind faith, but continual doubt. All we can do, for the moment, is really all we need to do. Listen to ourselves. When we are trying to get better, the only truth that matters is what works for us. If something works, we don't necessarily care why. Diazepam didn't work for me. Sleeping pills and St John's warts and homeopathy didn't fix me either. I've never tried Prozac because even the idea intensified my panic, so I don't know about that. But then, I've never tried cognitive behavioural therapy either. If pills work for you, it doesn't really matter if this is to do with serotonin or another process or anything else. Keep taking them. Hell, if licking wallpaper does it for you, do that. I am not anti-pill. I am pro-anything that works, and I know pills do work for a lot of people. There may well come a time in the future where I take pills again. For now, I do what I know keeps me just about level. Exercise definitely helps me, as does yoga and absorbing myself in something or someone I love. So I keep doing these things. I suppose, in the absence of universal certainties, we are our own best laboratory. Chapter 3. The Brain is the Body. Part 1. We tend to see the brain and the body as separate things. While in previous epochs the heart was at the centre of our being, or at least on an equal footing with the mind, now we have this strange separation where the mind is operating the rest of us, like a man inside a JCB digger. The whole idea of mental health as something separate to physical health can be misleading in some ways. So much of what you feel with anxiety and depression happens elsewhere. The heart palpitations the aching limbs, the sweaty palms, the tingling sensations that often accompany anxiety, for instance, or the aching limbs and the total body fatigue that sometimes becomes part of depression. Chapter 4. Psycho I suppose the first time I really felt my brain was a little bit alien, a bit other, was when I was 13. It was a few months after the time I had tried to remove my mole with a toothbrush. I was in the Peak District, in Derbyshire. School trip. The girls were staying in the hostel. The boys were meant to be staying there too, but there had been a double booking, 
so eight of us boys stayed in the stables outside, a good distance from the warm hotel. I hated being away from home. This was another of my big anxieties. I wanted to be back in my own bed, looking like my poster of Beatrice Dahl or reading Stephen King's Christine. I lay on a top bunk, looking out of the window at the black, boggy landscape under a starless sky. I didn't really have any friends among these boys. They talked only about football, which wasn't my specialist subject, and wanking, which was slightly more a specialist subject, but not one I felt comfortable discussing in public. So I pretended to be asleep. There was no teacher with us here in the stables, and there was a kind of Lord of the Flies feeling I didn't like very much. I was tired. We had walked about ten miles that day, a lot of it through peat bogs. Sleep weighed on me, as thick and dark as the land all around. I woke to laughing. Mad, crazed laughing. As if the funniest thing in the world had just happened. I had talked in my sleep. Nothing is more hilarious to a 13-year-old boy than witnessing an unguarded and embarrassing moment of another 13-year-old boy. I had said something incoherent about cows and Newark. Newark was my hometown, so that was understandable. The cows thing, well, that was weird. There were no cows in the Peak District. I was told I had said over and over, Kellum is in Newark. Kellum was a village just outside Newark where the town council was. My dad worked as an architect there in the town planning department. I tried my best to ride the joke, but I was tired, nervous. A school trip was just school, condensed. I had not enjoyed school since I was 11, and I'd been at a village school with a total pupil population of 28. The school I was at now, Magdalen High School, was a place where I was not very happy. I spent a lot of the first year faking stomach aches that were rarely believed. Then I fell asleep again, and when I woke up I was shaking. I was standing up, and I could feel cold air, and there was a considerable amount of blood dripping from my hand. My hand was red and shining with it. There was a shard of glass sticking out of my palm. The window to the stables was smashed in front of me. I felt frightened. The other boys were all awake, but not laughing now. A teacher was there too, or was about to be there. My hand had to be bandaged. I'd got out of bed in my sleep. I had shouted out, rather comically, about cows again. The cows are coming! The cows are coming! Then I'd gone for a piss next to someone's bed, and then smashed the window. Shortly after, one of the boys shook my arm and I woke up. It wasn't the first time I'd sleepwalked. Over the previous year, I'd gone into my sister's bedroom and taken books off her shelves, thinking I was in a library. But my sleepwalking had never gone public, until now. I gained a new nickname, Psycho. I felt like a freak, but it could have been worse. I had loving parents and a few friends and a sister I could chat to for hours. My life was pretty comfortable and ordinary, but sometimes a sense of loneliness would creep over me. I felt lonely. Not depression, just a version of that wallowy, teenage, no-one-understands-me feeling. Of course, I didn't understand me either. I worried about things. Nuclear war, Ethiopia, the prospect of going on a ferry. I worried all the time. The only thing that didn't worry me was the thing that probably should have. Worry itself. It would be 11 years before I had to address that one. Chapter 5 Jenga Days
Eleven years after smashing a window in my sleep, during those breakdown months, as I'd later call them, there was a lot of empty time to stare worry in the face. My parents would get up and leave for work, and then me and Andrea would have long days in the house. It's weird to write about this period. I mean, really, there's nothing to write about. It was, from the outside, the least eventful phase of my life by quite a way. From the outside, it was me talking with Andrea, either in my childhood bedroom or downstairs in the kitchen. Occasionally, we'd venture outside for a short walk in the afternoon. We would go either to the nearest corner shop, only about two or three hundred metres away, or, on more adventurous days, we would go and walk by the River Trent, which was a little further away, on the other side of a town centre, and involved me walking through streets I knew so well from childhood. How could they stay the same when I felt so different? Sometimes we bought a newspaper and a tin of soup and some bread, and we would return and read a bit of the paper and make the soup. Later, we might help prepare the evening meal. And that was about it. Talking and sitting and walking. Hardly Lawrence of Arabia. Life at the lowest possible volume two 24-year-olds could manage. And yet those days were the most intense I have lived. Those days contained thousands of tiny battles. They are filled with memories so painful I can only now, with the distance of fourteen and a half years, look at them head on. I was a nervous wreck. People say, take it one day at a time. But, I used to think to myself, that's all right for them to say. Days were mountains. A week was a trek across the Himalayas. You see, people say that time is relative, but it really bloody is. Einstein said the way to understand relativity was to imagine the difference between love and pain. When you are courting a nice girl, an hour seems like a second. When you sit on a red-hot cinder, a second seems like an hour. Every moment was red-hot. And the only thing I wished for, beyond feeling better, was for time to move quicker. I'd want 9am to be 10am. I'd want the morning to be the afternoon. I'd want the 22nd of September to be the 23rd of September. I would want the light to be dark and the dark to be light. I still had the toy globe I'd had as a boy in my room. I sometimes used to stand there and spin it, wishing I was spinning the world deep into the next millennium. I was as obsessed with time as some people are about money. It was the only weapon I had. I'd build up hours and minutes like pounds and pence. In my head, amid all the raging waters of anxiety, this knowledge buoyed like hope. It is October the 3rd, 22 days since it happened. The longer that time went on and I was still... A. Alive, and B. Not mistaking anyone for a hat, the more I felt like there was a chance I could get through this. But it didn't always work like that. I stacked the days up like Jenga blocks, imagining I was making progress, and then, crash! Along would come a five-hour panic attack, or a day of total, apocalyptic darkness, and those Jenga days would topple back down again. Chapter 6. Warning Signs Warning signs are very hard with depression. It's especially hard for people with no direct experience of depression to know them when they see them. Partly this is because some people are confused about what depression actually is. We use depressed as a synonym for sad, which is fine, as we use starving as a synonym for hungry, 
that the difference between depression and sadness is the difference between genuine starvation and feeling a bit peckish. Depression is an illness, yet it doesn't come with a rash or a cough. It's hard to see as it's generally invisible. Even though it's a serious illness, it is also surprisingly hard for many sufferers to recognise it at first. Not because it doesn't feel bad, it does, but because that bad feeling seems unrecognisable or can be confused with other things. For instance, if you feel worthless, you might think, I feel worthless because I am worthless. It might be hard to see it as a symptom of an illness. Or even, if it is seen as that, it's possible that low self-worth combined with fatigue might mean there is little will or ability to vocalise it. But in any case, these are some of the most frequently cited signs that someone is depressed. Fatigue. If someone is tired all the time, for no real reason. Low self-esteem. A hard one for others to spot, especially in those people who aren't that comfortable talking about their feelings. And low self-esteem isn't exactly conducive with getting out there in the world. Psychomotor retardation. In certain cases of depression, slow movements and slow speech may happen. Loss of appetite. Though massive increase in appetite can sometimes be a symptom too. Irritability. <laughs> to be fair, that can be a sign of anything. Frequent crying episodes. Anadonia. I first knew this word as Woody Allen's original title for the film Annie Hall. It means, as I've said, the inability to experience pleasure in anything, even the pleasurable things like sunsets and nice food and watching dubious Chevy Chase comedies from the 80s, that sort of stuff. Sudden introversion. If someone seems quieter or more introverted than normal, it could mean they're depressed. I can remember there were times when I couldn't speak. It felt like I couldn't move my tongue and talking seemed so utterly pointless just as the things other people talked about seem to belong to another world. Chapter 7 Demons The demon sat next to me in the back of the car. He was real and false all at once. Not a hallucination, exactly, and not transparent like a theme park ghost, but there and not there. There when I closed my eyes, there even when I opened them again. A kind of flickering mind print transferred over reality, but something imagined rather than seen. He was short, about three foot. Impish and grey, like a gargoyle on a cathedral. And he was looking up at me, smiling. And then he got up on the seat and started licking my face. He had a long, dry tongue, and he kept on. Lick, lick, lick. He didn't really scare me. I mean, fear was there, obviously. I was living continually inside fear. But the demon didn't send me deeper into terror. If anything, he was a comfort. The licks were caring licks, as if I was one big wound and he was trying to make me better. The car was heading to the Nottingham Theatre Royal. We were off to see Swan Lake. It was the production where all the swans were male. My mother was talking. Andrea was in the front passenger seat, listening, 
with polite patience to my mother. I can't remember what she was saying, but I can remember she was talking, because I kept on thinking, this is weird. Mum is talking about Matthew Bourne and her friends who have seen this production, and there is a happy demon on the back seat licking my face. The licking got a bit more annoying. I tried to switch the demon off, or the idea of the demon, but of course that made it worse. Lick, 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 lick. I couldn't really feel the tongue on my skin, but the idea of the demon licking my face was real enough for my brain to tingle, as if I was being tickled. The demon laughed. We went into the theatre. Swans danced. I felt my heart speed up. The dark, the confinement, my mother holding my hand. It was all too much. This was it. Everything was over. Except, of course, it wasn't. I stayed in my seat. Anxiety and depression, that most common mental health cocktail, fused together in weird ways. I'd often close my eyes and see strange things, but now I feel like sometimes those things were only there because one of the things I was scared of was going mad. And if you're mad, then seeing things that aren't there is probably a symptom. If you are scared when there is nothing to be scared of, eventually your brain has to give you things. And so that classic expression... The only thing to fear is fear itself. Becomes a kind of meaningless taunt. Because fear is enough. It's a monster, in fact. And of course, monsters are real, as Stephen King said. And ghosts are real too. They live inside us, and sometimes they win. It was dark. The house was silent, so he tried to be too. I love you, she whispered. I love you, I whispered back. We kissed. I felt demons watching us, gathering around us as we kissed and held each other. And slowly, in my mind, the demons retreated for a while. Chapter 8 Existence Life is hard. It may be beautiful and wonderful, but it is also hard. The way people seem to cope is by not thinking about it too much. But some people are not going to be able to do that. And besides, it is the human condition. We think, therefore we are. We know we are going to grow old, get ill and die. We know that is going to happen to everyone we know, everyone we love. But also, we have to remember, the only reason we have love in the first place is because of this. Humans might well be the only species to feel depression as we do, but that is simply because we are a remarkable species – one that has created remarkable things. Civilization, language, stories, love songs. Chiaroscuro means a contrast of light and shade. In Renaissance paintings of Jesus, for instance, dark shadow was used to accentuate the light bathing Christ. It's a hard thing to accept that death and decay and everything bad leads to everything good, but I for one believe it. As Emily Dickinson, eternally great poet and occasionally anxious agrophobe, said, that it will never come again is what makes life so sweet. Part 3. Rising Just close your eyes and hold your breath and everything will turn real pretty. Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters of the Third Kind Chapter 1 
things you think during your first panic attack. One, I am going to die. Two, I'm going to go so mad there will be no coming back. Three, this won't end. Four, everything is going to get worse. Five, no one's heart is meant to beat this fast. Six, I'm thinking far too fast. Seven, I'm trapped. Eight, no one has felt this way before, ever, in the whole of human history. Nine, why are my arms numb? Ten, I will never get over this. Chapter 2 Things You Think During Your 1000th Panic Attack 1. Here it comes. 2. I've been here before. 3. But wow, it's still quite bad. 4. I might die. 5. I'm not going to die. 6. I'm trapped. 7. This is the worst ever. 8. No, it's not. Remember Spain. 9. Why are my arms numb? 10. I will get over this. Chapter 3 The Art of Walking on Your Own When I was most severely depressed, I had quite a vast collection of related mental illnesses. We humans love to compartmentalise things. We love to divide our education system into separate subjects, just as we love to divide our shared planet into nations and our books into separate genres. But the reality is that things are blurred. Just as being good at mathematics often means someone is good at physics, so having depression means that it probably comes with other things. Anxieties, maybe some phobias, a pinch of OCD. Compulsive swallowing was a big thing with me. I also had agoraphobia and separation anxiety for a while. A measure of progress I had was how far I could walk on my own. If I was outside and I wasn't with Andrea or one of my parents, I wasn't able to cope. But rather than avoid these situations, I forced myself into them. I think this helped. It's quite gruelling always facing fear and heading into it, but it seemed to work. On the days when I was feeling very brave, I would say something, ahem, impossibly heroic, like, I am going to the shop to get some milk and marmite. And Andrea would look at me and say, On your own? Yes, on my own. I'll be fine. It was 1999. Lots of people didn't have mobile phones. So on your own still meant on your own and so I would hurriedly put on my coat and grab some money and leave the house as quickly as I could, trying to outpace the panic. And by the time I reached the end of Wellington Road, my parents' street, it would be there, the darkness whispering at me, and I would turn the corner onto Sleaford Road, orange brick terraces with net curtains, and I would feel a deep level of insecurity, like I was in a shuttle that was leaving the Earth's orbit. It wasn't simply a walk to the shop. It was Apollo 13. It's okay, I whispered to myself, and I would pass a fellow human walking a dog and they would ignore me, or they would frown, or, worse, smile, 
and so I would smile back and then my head would quickly punish me. That's the odd thing about depression and anxiety. It acts like an intense fear of happiness, even as you yourself consciously want that happiness more than anything. So if it catches you smiling, even fake smiling, then, well, that stuff's just not allowed and you know it. So here comes ten tons of counterbalance. The weirdness. That feeling of being outside, alone. It was as unnatural as being a roof without walls. I would see the shop up ahead. The letters Londis, still looking small and far away. So much sadness and fear to walk through. There is no way I can do this. There is no way I can walk to the shop on my own and find milk and marmite. But if you go back home, you'll be weaker still. What are you going to do? Go back and be lost and go mad? If you go back, the chances of living forever in a padded cell with white walls is higher than it is already. Do it. Just walk to the shop. It's a shop. You've been walking to the corner shop on your own since you were ten. One foot in front of the other, shoulders back. Breathe. Then my heart kicked in. Ignore it. But listen. Boom, 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 boom. Ignore it. But listen. But listen. But fucking listen. And the other things. The mind images straight out of unmade horror films. The pins and needles sensation at the back of my head. Then all through my brain. The numb hands and arms. The sense of being physically empty. Of dissolving. Of being a ghost whose existence was sourced by electric anxiety. And it became hard to breathe. The air thinned. It took massive concentration just to keep control of my breathing. Just go to the shop. Just go to the shop. Just carry on. Just get there. I got to the shop. Shops, by the way, were the places I would panic in most, with or without Andrea. Shops caused me intense anxiety. I was never really sure what it was. Was it the lighting? Was it the geometric layout of the aisles? Was it the CCTV cameras? Was it that the point of brands was to scream for attention and when you were deeply in tune with your surroundings, maybe those screams got to you? A kind of death by Unilever. This was only Londis. Hardly a hypermarket. And the door was open. The street was right there. And that street joined onto my parents' street, which contained my parents' house, which contained Andrea, who contained everything. If I was running... I could probably get back there in little over a minute. I tried to focus. Cocoa Pops. It was hard. Frosties. Really hard. Crunchy nut cornflakes. Sugar puffs. The honey monster had never looked like an actual monster before. What was I in here for? Other than to prove a point to myself. This is crazy. This is the craziest thing I've ever done. It's just a shop. It's just a shop you have been in on your own 500 times before. Get a grip. Get a grip. But on what? There is nothing to grip onto. Everything is slippy. Life is so infinitely hard. It involves a thousand tasks all at once, and I am a thousand different people all fleeing away from the centre. The thing I hadn't realised before I became mentally ill is the physical aspect of it. I mean, even the stuff that happens inside your head is all sensation. My brain tingled, word fluttered and pumped. Much of this action seemed to happen near the rear of my skull. 
in my occipital lobe. Now, there was also some fuzzy TV static white noise feelings going on in my frontal lobe. If you thought too much, maybe you could feel those thoughts happening. An infinity of passion can be contained in one minute, wrote Flaubert, like a crowd in a small space. Get the fuck out of this shop. It's too much. You can't take this any more. Your brain is going to explode. Brains don't explode. Life isn't a David Cronenberg movie. But maybe I could fall the same distance again. Maybe the fall that happened in Ibiza had only landed me halfway. Maybe the actual underworld was much further down in the basement and I was heading there and I'd end up like a shell-shocked soldier from a poem, dribbling and howling and lost, unable even to kill myself. And maybe being in this shop was going to send me there. There was a woman behind the counter. I can still picture her. She was about my age. Maybe she had gone to my school, but I didn't recognise her. She had that kind of dyed red hair that was a bit half-hearted. She was large and pale-skinned and was reading a celebrity magazine. She looked calmer than calm. I wanted to jump ship. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be her so much. Does that sound silly? Of course it does. This whole thing sounds silly. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Marmite. I found the Marmite. I grabbed it as an old rap from Eric B and Rakeem played at high speed in my head. I'm also a sculpture born this structure. I was a sculpture with no structure, a structureless sculpture who still had to get the milk. Rows of milk bottles in a fridge can be as terrifying and unnatural as anything with the right, wrong perspective. My parents got semi-skimmed, but the only semi-skimmed here was in pints. Not the two-pint ones that they normally got. So I picked up two of the one-pinters, hooking my index finger through the handles and taking them, and the marmite, to the counter. Boom, 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 boom. The woman I wanted to be was not particularly fast at her job. I think she was the slowest person there had ever been at her job. I think she may well have been the incentive of a later move towards self-service checkouts in many shops. Even as I wanted to be her, I hated her slowness. Hurry up, I didn't say. Do you have any idea of what you're doing? I wanted to go back and start my life again at her pace. And then I would not be feeling like this. I needed a slower run-up. Do you need a bag? I sort of did need a bag, but I couldn't risk slowing her down any more. Standing still was very hard. When every bit of you is panicking, then walking is better than standing. Something flooded my brain. I closed my eyes. I saw dwarf demons having fun, laughing at me as if my madness was an act at a carnival. No, it's okay. I only live around the corner. Around the bend. I paid with a five-pound note. Keep the change. And she started to realise it was a bit weird, and I left the shop and I was out, back into the vast and open world, and I kept walking as fast as I could. To break into a run would be a kind of defeat, feeling like a fish on the deck of a boat, needing the water again. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I turned the corner, and I prayed more than anything not to see someone I knew on Wellington Road. No one, just emptiness and suburban, semi-detached, late Victorian houses lined up and staring at each other. And I got back to number 33, my parents' house, and I rang the bell and Andrea answered, 
and I was inside and there was no relief because my mind was quick to point out that being relieved about surviving a trip to the corner shop was another confirmation of sickness, not wellness. But maybe, mind, there would come a day when you could be as slow as the girl in the shop pointing out such things. You're getting there, said Andrea. Yeah, I said, and tried so hard to believe it. We're going to get you better. It's not easy, being there for a depressive. Chapter 4 A Conversation Across Time, Part 2 I can't do this. You think you can't, but you can, you do, you will. This pain, though, you must have forgotten what it was like. I went on an escalator today, in a shop, and I felt myself disintegrating. It was like the whole universe was pulling me apart, right there, in John Lewis. I probably have forgotten, a little bit. But listen, look, I'm here. I'm here now, and I made it. We made it. You just have to hold on. I so want to believe that you exist, that I don't kill you off. You didn't. You don't. You won't. Why would I stay alive? Wouldn't it be better to feel nothing than to feel such pain? Isn't zero worth more than minus one thousand? Listen. Just listen. Just get this through your head, okay? You make it. And on the other side of this, there is life. L-I-F-E. You understand? And there will be stuff you enjoy. And just stop worrying about worrying. Just worry. You can't help that. But don't meta-worry. You look old. You have crow's feet. Are you starting to lose your hair? Yes. But remember, we've always worried about this stuff. Can you remember that holiday to Dordogne when we were ten? We leaned forward into the mirror and started to worry about the lines in our forehead. We were worried about the visible effects of ageing back then, because we have always been scared of dying. Are you still scared of dying? Yes. I need a reason to stay alive. I need something strong that will keep me here. Okay, okay. Give me a minute. Chapter 5 Reasons to Stay Alive 1. You are on another planet. No one understands what you are going through. But actually, they do. You don't think they do, because the only reference point is yourself. You have never felt this way before, and the shock of the descent is traumatising you but others have been here. You are in a dark, dark land with a population of millions. Two. Things aren't going to get worse. You want to kill yourself. That is as low as it gets. There is only upwards from here. Three. You hate yourself. That is because you are sensitive. Pretty much Every human could find a reason to hate themselves if they thought about it as much as you did. We're all total bastards, us humans, but also totally wonderful. 4. So what? You have a label. Depressive. Everyone would have a label if they asked the right professional. 5. That feeling you have that everything is going to get worse 
is just a symptom. 6. Mines have their own weather systems. You are in a hurricane. Hurricanes run out of energy eventually. Hold on. 7. Ignore stigma. Every illness had stigma once. We fear getting ill, and fear tends to lead to prejudice before information. Polio used to be erroneously blamed on poor people, for instance, and depression is often seen as a weakness or personality failing. 8. Nothing lasts forever. This pain won't last. The pain tells you it will last. But pain lies. Ignore it. Pain is a debt paid off with time. 9. Minds move. Personalities shift. To quote myself from the humans, Your mind is a galaxy, more dark than light, but the light makes it worthwhile. Which is to say, don't kill yourself. Even when the darkness is total, always know that life is not still. Time is space. You are moving through that galaxy. Wait for the stars. 10. You will one day experience joy that matches this pain. You will cry euphoric tears at the Beach Boys. You will stare down at a baby's face as she lies asleep in your lap. You will make great friends. You will eat delicious foods you haven't tried yet. You will be able to look at a view from a high place and not assess the likelihood of dying from falling. There are books you haven't read yet that will enrich you. Films you will watch while eating extra large buckets of popcorn and you will dance and laugh and have sex and go for runs by the river and have late night conversations and laugh until it hurts. Life is waiting for you. You might be stuck here for a while, but the world isn't going anywhere. Hang on in there if you can. Life is always worth it. Chapter 6 Love we are essentially alone. There is no getting around this fact, even if we try and forget it a lot of the time. When we are ill, there is no escape from this truth. Pain of any kind is a very isolating experience. My back is playing up right now. I am writing this with my legs up against the wall and my back lying flat on a sofa. If I sit up normally, hunched over a notepad or a laptop in the classic writer position, my lower back begins to hurt. It doesn't really help me to know when the pain flares up again that millions of other people also suffer from back problems. So why do we bother with love? No matter how much we love someone, we are never going to make them or ourselves free of pain. Well, let me tell you something, something that sounds bland and drippy to the untrained eye, but which, I assure you, is something I believe entirely. Love saved me. Andrea, she saved me. Her love for me and my love for her. Not just once, either. Repeatedly, over and over. We'd been together five years by the time I fell ill. What had Andrea gained in that time since the nights before her 19th birthday? A continued sense of financial insecurity? An inadequate alcohol-impaired sex life? At university, our friends always considered us to be a happy couple, and we were, except for the other half of the time, when we were an unhappy couple. The interesting thing was that we were fundamentally different people. Andrea liked lie-ins and early nights, while I was a bad sleeper and a night owl. She had a strong work ethic and I didn't. Not then, 
though depression, strangely, has given me one. She liked organisation, and I was the most disorganised person she had met. Mixing us together was, in some ways, like mixing chlorine with ammonia. It simply was not a good idea. But I made her laugh. She said I was fun. We liked to talk. Both of us, I suppose, were quite shy and private people in our own way. Andrea, particularly, was a social chameleon. This was a kind of kindness. She never could cope if someone felt awkward and so always bent to meet them as much as she could. I think if I offered her anything, it was the chance to be herself. If, as Schopenhauer said, we forfeit three-fourths of ourselves in order to be like other people, then love, at its best, is a way to reclaim those lost parts of ourselves. That freedom we lost somewhere quite early in childhood. Maybe love is just about finding the person you can be your weird self with. I helped her be her and she helped me be me. We did this through talking. In our first year together, we would very often stay up all night talking. The night would start with us going to the wine shop at the bottom of Sharp Street in Hull, the street my student house was on, and buying a bottle of wine we couldn't afford and would very often end with us watching breakfast TV on my own Hitachi which required constant manoeuvring of the aerial to see the picture. Then a year later we had fun playing grown-ups, buying the River Cafe cookbook and holding dinner parties at which we would serve up panzanella salads and expensive wines in our damp-infested student flat. Please, do not think this was a perfect relationship. It wasn't. It still isn't. The time we spent living in Ibiza, particularly, now seems to be one long argument. Just listen to this. Matt, wake up. What? Wake up. It's half nine. So? I've got to be at the office at ten. It's a 45-minute drive. So? No one will know. It's a beefer. You're being selfish. I'm being tired. You're hungover. You were drinking vodka lemon all night. Sorry for having a good time. You should try it. Fuck off. I'm getting in the car. What? You can't leave me in the villa all day. I'll be stranded in the middle of nowhere. There's no food. Just wait ten minutes. I'm going. I'm just so fed up with you. Why? You're the one who wants to be here. My job is what keeps us here. It's why we're in this villa. But you work six days a week, twelve hours a day. They're exploiting you. They're still out clubbing and no one's in the office till after twelve. They value you because you're a maniac. You bend over backwards for them and treat me like crap. Bye, Matt. Oh, fuck off. You're not really going, are you? You selfish cunt. OK, I'm getting ready. Fuck. But the arguments were surface stuff. If you go deep enough under a tidal wave, the water is still. That is what we were like. In a way, we argued because we knew it would have no fundamental impact. When you can be yourself around someone, you project your dissatisfied self outwards. And in a beefer, I was that. I was not happy, and part of my personality was this. When I was unhappy, I tried to drown myself in pleasure. I was, to use the most therapy of terms, in denial. I was denying my unhappiness, even as I was being a tetchy, hungover boyfriend. There was never a single moment, though, where I would have said or felt that I didn't love her. I loved her totally. Friendship love and love love, philia and eros. I always had done. Though of the two, that deep and total friendship love turns out to be the most important. When the depression hit, Andrea was there for me. 
She'd be kind to me and cross with me in all the right ways. She was someone I could talk to, someone I could say anything to. Being with her was basically being with an outer version of myself. The force and fury she'd once displayed in arguments she now used to steer me better. She accompanied me on trips to doctors. She encouraged me to ring the right helplines. She got us to move into our own place. She encouraged me to read, to write. She earned us money. She gave us time. She handled all the organisational side of my life, the stuff you need to do to tick over. She filled in the blanks that worry and darkness had left in its wake. She was my mind double, my life sitter, my literal other half when half of me had gone. She covered for me, waiting patiently like a war wife during my absence from myself. Chapter 7 How to be there for someone with depression or anxiety 1. Know that you are needed and appreciated, even if it seems you are not. 2. Listen. 3. Never say pull yourself together or cheer up unless you're also going to provide detailed, foolproof instructions. Tough love doesn't work. Turns out that just good old love is enough. 4. Appreciate that it is an illness. Things will be said that aren't meant. 5. Educate yourself. Understand, above all, that what might seem easy to you, going to a shop, for instance, might be an impossible challenge for a depressive. 6. Don't take anything personally, any more than you would take someone suffering with the flu or chronic fatigue syndrome or arthritis personally. None of this is your fault. 7. Be patient. Understand it isn't going to be easy. Depression ebbs and flows and moves up and down. It doesn't stay still. Do not take one happy or bad moment as proof of recovery or relapse. Play the long game. 8. Meet them where they are. Ask what you can do. The main thing you can do is just be there. 9. Relieve any work-life pressure if that is doable. 10. Where possible, don't make the depressive feel weirder than they already feel. Three days on the sofa, haven't opened the curtains, crying over difficult decisions like which pair of socks to wear. So what? No biggie? There is no standard normal. Normal is subjective. There are seven billion versions of normal on this planet. Chapter 8 An Inconsequential Moment it came, the moment I was waiting for, sometime in April 2000. It was totally inconsequential. In fact, there's not much to write about. That was the whole point. It was a moment of nothingness, of absent-mindedness, of spending almost ten seconds awake, but not actively thinking of my depression or anxiety. I was thinking about work, about trying to get an article published in a newspaper. It wasn't a happy thought, but a neutral one. But it was a break in the clouds, a sign that the sun was still there, somewhere. It was over, not much after it began. But when those clouds came back, there was hope. There would be a time when those painless seconds would become minutes and hours and maybe even days. Chapter 9 
Things that have happened to me that have generated more sympathy than depression. Having tinnitus. Scolding my hand on an oven and having to have my hand in a strange ointment-filled glove for a week. Accidentally setting my leg on fire. Losing a job. Breaking a toe. Being in debt. Having a river flood our nice new house causing £10,000 worth of damage. Bad Amazon reviews. Getting the norovirus. Having to be circumcised when I was 11. Lower back pain. Having a blackboard fall on me. Irritable bowel syndrome. Being a street away from a terrorist attack. Eczema. Living in Hull in January. Relationship breakups. Working in a cabbage packing warehouse. Working in media sales. Okay, that came close. Consuming a poisoned prawn. Three day migraines. Chapter 10 Life on Earth to an Alien It's hard to explain depression to people who haven't suffered from it. It's like explaining life on Earth to an alien. The reference points just aren't there. You have to resort to metaphors. You are trapped in a tunnel. You are at the bottom of the ocean. You're on fire. The main thing is the intensity of it. It does not fit within the normal spectrum of emotions. When you're in it, you are really in it. You can't step outside it without stepping outside of life because it is life. It's your life. Every single thing you experience is filtered through it. Consequently, it magnifies everything. At its most extreme, things that an everyday normal person would hardly notice have overwhelming effects. The sun sinks behind a cloud and you feel that slight change in weather as if a friend has died. You feel the difference between inside and outside as a baby feels the difference between womb and world. You swallow an ibuprofen and your neurotic brain acts like it has taken an overdose of methamphetamine. Depression, for me, wasn't a dulling but a sharpening, an intensifying, as though I had been living my life in a shell and now the shell wasn't there. It was total exposure, a red, raw, naked mind, a skinned personality, a brain in a jar full of the acid that is experience. What I didn't realise at the time, what would have seemed incomprehensible to me, was that this state of mind would end up having positive effects as well as negative effects. I'm not talking about all that what-doesn't-kill-you-makes-you-stronger stuff. No, that's simply not true. What doesn't kill you very often makes you weaker. What doesn't kill you can leave you limping for the rest of your days. What doesn't kill you can make you scared to leave your house or even your bedroom and have you trembling or mumbling incoherently or leaning with your head on a window pane, wishing you could return to the time before the thing that didn't kill you. No. This isn't a question of strength. Not the stoic, get-on-with-stuff-without-thinking-too-much kind of strength, anyway. It's more of a zooming in, that sharpening, that switch from the prosaic to the poetic. You know, before the age of 24, I hadn't known how bad things could feel, but I hadn't realised how good they could feel, either. That shell might be protecting you, but it's also stopping you feeling the full force of that good stuff. Depression might be a hell of a price to pay for waking up to life, and while it is on top of you, it is one that could never seem worth paying. Clouds with silver linings are still clouds, 
but it is quite therapeutic to know that pleasure doesn't just help compensate for pain, it can actually grow out of it. Chapter 11. White Space We spent three long months at my parents' house, then spent the rest of that winter in a cheap flat in a student area of Leeds, while Andrea did freelance PR work and I tried not to go mad. But from, I suppose, April 2000, that good stuff started to become available. The bad stuff was still there at the start. The bad stuff was there most of the time. The good stuff probably amounted to about 0.0001% of that April. The good stuff was just warm sunshine on my face as Andrea and I walked from our flat in the suburbs to the city centre. It lasted as long as the sunshine was there and then it disappeared. But from that point on, I knew it could be accessed. I knew life was available to me again. And so in May, 0.0001% became about 0.1%. I was rising. Then, at the start of June, we moved to a flat in the city centre. The thing I liked about it was the light. I liked that the walls were white and that the unnatural laminated floor mimicked the blondest wood and that the square modern windows made up most of the walls and that the low-grade sofa the landlord had put in was turquoise. Of course, it was still England. It was still Yorkshire. Light was severely rationed. But this was as good as it got on our budget, or just above our budget, and it was certainly better than the student flat with its burgundy carpets and its brown kitchen. Turquoise sofa beat turquoise mould. Light was everything. Sunshine, windows with the blinds open, pages with short chapters and lots of white space and short paragraphs. Light was everything. But so, increasingly, were books. I read and read and read with an intensity I'd never really known before. I mean, I'd always considered myself to be a person who liked books, but there's a difference between liking books and needing them. I needed books. They weren't a luxury good during that time in my life. They were a class A addictive substance. I'd have gladly got into serious debt to read. Indeed, I did. I think I read more books in those six months than I had done during five years of university education, and I'd certainly fallen deeper into the worlds conjured on the page. There's this idea that you either read to escape or you read to find yourself. I don't really see the difference. We find ourselves through the process of escaping. It is not where we are, but where we want to go, and all that. Is there no way out of the mind? Sylvia Plath famously asked. I had been interested in this question, what it meant, what the answers might be, ever since I had come across it as a teenager in a book of quotations. If there is a way out, a way that isn't death itself, then the exit route is through words. But rather than leave the mind entirely, words help us leave a mind and give us the building blocks to build another one, similar but better, nearby to the old one but with firmer foundations and very often a better view. The object of art is to give life a shape, said Shakespeare, and my life and my mess of a mind needed shape. I had lost the plot. There was no linear narrative of me. There was just mess and chaos. So yes, I loved external narratives for the hope they offered. Films, TV dramas and most of all books. They were, 
in and of themselves, reasons to stay alive. Every book written is the product of a human mind in a particular state. Add all the books together and you get the end sum of humanity. Every time I read a great book, I felt I was reading a kind of map, a treasure map, and the treasure I was being directed to was in actual fact myself. But each map was incomplete, and I would only locate the treasure if I read all the books. And so the process of finding my best self was an endless quest, and books themselves seemed to me to reflect this idea. Which is why the plot of every book ever can be boiled down to someone is looking for something. One cliché attached to bookish people is that they are lonely. But for me, books were my way out of being lonely. If you have a type of person who thinks too much about stuff, then there is nothing lonelier in the world than being surrounded by a load of people on a different wavelength. In my deepest state of depression, I had felt stuck. I felt trapped in quicksand. As a kid, that had been my most common nightmare. Books were about movement. They were about quests and journeys beginnings and middles and ends, even if not in that order. They were about new chapters and leaving old ones behind. And because it was only a few months before that, I had lost the point of words and stories and even language. I was determined never to feel like that again. I fed and I fed and I fed. I used to sit with a bedside lamp on, reading for about two hours after Andrea had gone to sleep, until my eyes were dry and sore, always seeking and never quite finding, but with that feeling of being tantalisingly close. Chapter 12. The Power and the Glory One of the books I remember rereading was The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Graham Greene was an interesting choice. I had studied for writer while doing an MA at Leeds University. I don't know why I took that module, I didn't really know anything about Graham Greene. I knew about Brighton Rock, but I'd never read it. I'd also heard once that he'd lived in Nottinghamshire and hated it. I had lived in Nottinghamshire and, at that time, had often hated it too. Maybe that was the reason. For the first few weeks, I'd thought it was a major mistake. I was the only person who'd taken the module, and the tutor hated me. I don't know if hate is the word, but he certainly didn't like me. He was a Catholic always dressed formally, and spoke to me with delicate disdain. Those hours were long and had all the relaxed and casual joy of a trip to the doctor's for a testicular inspection. Often, I must have stank of beer, as I would always drink a can or two on the train journey to Leeds, from Hull, where Andrea and I were still living. At the end of the module, I wrote the best essay I had ever written and was given a 69%, one shy of a distinction. I took it as a personal insult. Anyway, I loved Graham Greene. His works were filled with a discomfort I related to. There were all kinds of discomforts on offer. Discomforts of guilt, sex, Catholicism, unrequited love, forbidden lust, tropical heat, politics, war. Everything was uncomfortable, except the prose. I loved the way he wrote. I loved the way he'd compare a solid thing to something abstract. He drank the brandy down like damnation. I loved this technique even more now, because the divide between the material and non-material worlds seemed to have blurred with depression. Even my own physical body seemed unreal and abstract and partly fictional. 
The Power and the Glory is about a whiskey priest travelling through Mexico in the 1930s at a time when Catholicism is outlawed. Throughout the novel, he is pursued by a police lieutenant tasked with tracking him down. I had liked this story when I first read it at university, but I loved it now. Having been a borderline alcoholic in Ibiza, empathising with a borderline alcoholic in Mexico wasn't too hard. It is a dark, intense book. But when you are feeling dark and intense, these are the only kind of books that can speak to you. Yet there was an optimism too, the possibility of redemption. It is a book about the healing power of love. Hate is a lack of imagination, we are told. But also, there is always one moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. Experience surrounds innocence, and innocence can never be regained once lost. The book is about, like many of his books, Catholic guilt. But for me, it was about depression. Green was a depressive, had been since a child, being bullied at the school where his unpopular father was headmaster. He'd semi-attempted suicide with a solitary game of Russian roulette. The guilt was, for me, not the spiritual guilt of Catholicism, but the psychological guilt that depression brings, and it helped relieve the isolation that the illness brings. Other books are read at this time. Invisible Cities, Italo Calvino. The most beautiful book. Imaginary Cities, each kind of like Venice, but not at all like Venice. Dreams on a page, so unreal they could almost dislodge my strange mind visions. The Outsiders, S.E. Hinton, the book that got me properly into reading as a ten-year-old, has always been my favourite escape read. It drips with America and has gorgeously sentimental dialogue. Like, stay gold, pony boy, said by Johnny on his deathbed after reading Robert Frost's Nothing Gold Can Stay. The Outsider, Albert Camus. I had a thing about outsiders and existential despair. The numbness of the prose was strangely soothing. The Concise Collins Dictionary of Quotations Quotations are easy to read. Letters of Keats I had studied Keats at university. The archetypal young poet was thin-skinned and doomed and intense, and I felt these things. Oranges are not the only fruit, Jeanette Winterson. I love Jeanette's writing. Every word contains strength or wisdom. I picked it up at random pages to see sentences that could speak to me. I seem to have run in a great circle and met myself again on the starting line. Vox, Nicholson Baker. A novel that consists entirely of an episode of phone sex that had titillated and enthralled me when I was 16. Pure dialogue. Again, easy to read and full of sex, or the idea of sex. And for our young, anxiety-riddled mind, thinking of sex can be a positive distraction. Money, Martin Amis. Money was a book I knew inside out. I'd done essays on it. It was full of ballsy, swaggering, sharp, funny, macho, though sometimes rather hateful, prose. There was an intensity to it, and sad beauty amid the comedy. Every hour you get weaker, 
Sometimes, as I sit alone in my flat in London and stare at the window, I think how dismal it is, how heavy, to watch the rain and not know why it falls. The Diary of Samuel Pepys. In particular, I'd read the bit about the Great Fire and the Plague. There was something about the way Pepys jollied on through the more apocalyptic events of 17th century life that was very therapeutic to read about. The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger, because Holden was an old friend. The Penguin Book of First World War Poetry. Poems like Ivor Gurney's Strange Hells, The Heart Burns But Has to Keep Out of Face How Heart Burns, and Wilfred Owen's Mental Cases describing the shell-shocked patients of a mental hospital, fascinated me but troubled me. I had been through no war, and yet I related to that feeling of pain contained in every new day, as dawn breaks open like a wound that bleeds afresh. It fascinated me how depression and anxiety overlap with post-traumatic stress disorder. Had we been through some trauma we didn't know about? Was the noise and speed of modern life the trauma for our caveman brains? Was I that soft? Or was life a kind of war most people didn't see? A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, Julian Barnes Just because it was a book I'd read and loved before and which was funny and strange and I knew it inside out. Wilderness Tips, Margaret Atwood Short Stories, Smaller Hills to Climb a story called True Trash was my favourite, about teenage boys perving at waitresses. Wide Sargasso Sea, Jean Rhys, a prequel to Jane Eyre, about the madwoman in the attic and her descent into madness. It is mainly set in the Caribbean. The despair and isolation felt in paradise was what I related to most, to feeling terrible in the most beautiful place in the world which reminded me of that last week in Spain.